Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Enbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host Alexa Tollett. Alexa, what's new with you? Um, I'm glad you asked, Yoel. <laughs> so right now, I'm. Um, you may notice I'm in a different recording environment. Um, so I'm house sitting for some friends of mine who live in Birmingham, um, and they have uh, one dog and two cats. So I feel like. Uh, Teaching during the pandemic and stuff like that it would be like every time a student was like at home and they had a pet in their room, they'd be like, sorry if my pet gets in the way. And I was like, "Ugh!" like, just like, I don't need to hear about your pets. But now I'm like, how does anybody get anything done with pets around? Like, I'm pretty afraid that um, Willa, who's the dog, is going to start barking during the podcast and or they learn there will be like a cat on top of the mic. Um, so, yeah, also this has... Um, yeah, this has re- reaffirmed for me that I am not the strongest pet um, owner, watcher. You're saying they're walking all over you? Or what do you mean by not the strongest? Uh, I wouldn't say that they're walking all over me. I would say that, um, you know how people argue that you have to have like a un- like ir- like positive illusions about your romantic partner? Um, in order for things to go really smoothly, because it's like, you know, there are a lot of challenges. And so it's good for you to be like unrealistically positive. Yeah, I endorse that. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that sounds right to me. And I think that it might be true of being a pet owner as well, or being in charge of pets. Like, I think you have to be like, wow, this cat is so cute, or this dog is adorable, in order to not find them really annoying. And I don't have those, those illusions. I see. So for you, watching your friends' pets is like really an act of pure altruism because <laughs> you find them annoying. Um, yeah, pretty much. But I do get a kitchen out of the deal. So I mean, they're, they can be cute. Now I'm worried that they're going to listen to this. There, are, are they ardent listeners? Are they crying right now? <laughs> Probably not. Uh, sorry, Alexa's friends. You know, it's, it's just not for everybody. And I feel like it does uh, show that you're a really great friend, that you're willing to kind of bite the bullet and <laughs> watch their <laughs> ill-behaved, annoying animals for them. Definitely, I think that's the message people are going to take from this, that I'm a good person. Exactly right. This just makes you seem better. Um, so I also have news. I, you might notice that my recording environment is also different than usual today. I'm not in my normal closet. Although it does look like you are in a closet. <laughs> I, I just, you know, I just love it in the closet. What can I say? <laughs> I try to always record from a closet just as a matter of principle, but it I am in front of a different closet. And the reason for that is that um, about a week and a half ago, uh, the building that my girlfriend and I live in caught fire. Oh my God. And I know. Wow, I know. That is a story. That is that is what happened. So so we woke up at four in the morning and the fire alarm was going off. And I was like, oh, these stupid false alarms, right? Because your entire life, it's always a false alarm. And then I was like, what's that red flickering light out the window? Whoa. And I looked out the back, like where the balcony is, and there were these giant flames coming off the top of the building. Oh, my and God. Yeah, it was really intense. And I was sort of like, oh, shit, we got to get out of here. I was just like, we got to flee, right? And my girlfriend had the presence of mind to be like, okay, let's at least grab some things. We grabbed our like backpacks and laptops and like, you know, a jacket. And then at that point, the firefighters were like banging on our door. I'd be like, you got to get out of the building. So the good news is nobody was hurt uh, and they put it out pretty quickly. 
Uh, the bad news is that in doing so, they completely destroyed the building. Um, wow. And in particular, yeah, our apartment, which is on the top floor, they like had to take the roof off essentially to put the fire out and then like dumped a bunch of water on there and then it rained. So our apartment was basically just wrecked. It was like buried under like wet insulation and drywall. Uh, and the building is completely uninhabitable for like a year while they fix it. Oh my God, that's terrible. Yeah, it's not great. I mean, it's all about the counterfactual, right? It's conditional on a fire. It's good to not be dead, but it's even better to not have your apartment catch on fire, I would say. Yeah, right. It's interesting how, well, I don't know. This is this is like a pretty academic take on this event that happened to you that sounds like pretty crappy. And I'm sorry that it, that it happened and all of your possessions are destroyed. Is that right? That That all your stuff is gone or... So not all, but like a good amount, Uh, particularly my girlfriend's stuff more than mine, because a lot of my stuff was in the basement. But yeah, she had a lot of things that were just like completely ruined by this. Uh, And Uh she did have insurance, which is good. But a lot of the things had sentimental value or were kind of like irreplaceable clothing items where you can't just like, you know, buy them again at Target, right? So Yeah. yeah, it was a, it's a, it's a big hit to lose all your stuff like that, for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But wait, what was your what was your psychologizing? Um, the yeah, my like my annoying academic response is like it's it's interesting how w- the counterfactuals that people choose. Like I feel like there are big individual differences in that, but also I find myself like as soon as something bad happens, I go to a counterfactual that is worse than what happened, and I'm like, oh yeah, this isn't as bad as that. Like that seems to be the default for me is imagining a slightly worse scenario or something. So it's like, I mean, the summer I got like rear-ended and uh, my counterfactual was like, well, like I could have gotten really hurt. Megan could have gotten really hurt. So this is like pretty cool, you know, and I could have, st- I could still drive my car, but you would think that the first counterfactual you would think of is like, this could not have happened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's, uh, that's right. That's right. Um, and I, I don't know. So, I think it's true both that I'm less upset by this and that that is the natural counterfactual that occurred to me. Um, like things really could be worse, like nobody was harmed. Yeah. But I'm, I'm actually not sure that it's causal. So like, I'm not sure that you can sort of will yourself to believe the other counterfactual if uh-huh. it doesn't come naturally to you and make yourself feel better. I'm actually uh-huh. not convinced that it works that way at all. Yeah, right, right, right. Here's one more question that, that came up from this. Like, would you say that the objects in your life, that many of them have kind of a sentimental value or they're attached to some memory that's important to you? I've wondered this, like, sometimes wondering, like, okay, well, what would, what would happen if, yeah, my house burned down or or somebody, like, took a bunch of stuff? Or or if somebody were to, like, break into my home, like, what would they take? Um, yeah, I... I don't think that I have many, maybe this is something that you only realize like once things are gone, there are like things like, um, like letters and like little pieces of art and things like that, that people have given to me that I would be quite sad to lose. Um, and yeah, I think that the thing I would be most like disappointed about if my husband, like things like my laptop or I have like a, like a keyboard that I like, but I don't, I don't think there's too many things that I, like are to- would be totally devastating. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're much more like me. So like I do have a few kind of sentimental things like letters from friends that I've kept, mm-hmm. um old photos. 
there were gifts that my girlfriend and I had given each other that were lost. And that's kind of sad, right? Yeah. It's like, oh, remember I got you this. Although now it's like, we just know what gifts to get each other for the next like two, three years, right? We're set. You can just like <laughs> replace this stuff. It's like when the replication came along and spoiled all the effects. And then we were like, well, now we have like free range. A lot of studies to rerun. Exactly. Yeah. yeah you could publish on that for quite a while. Um, but for the most part, like I don't have a lot of things that have this kind of sentimental or memory value to me. Like, oh, this was given to me by so-and-so, and I really value it because it reminds me of our time where we did whatever. Instead, like if I like objects, it's because they have some sort of like function that I like. Like I really like my bike and it would be hard to replace mm-hmm. because they don't make that model anymore. Mm-hmm. But that's more of a utilitarian, like, oh, I have this thing that really fits my needs well, and then I wouldn't have it anymore, and that would make me sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, like, that's what, when I went to the keyboard, I was like, oh, that's like, if I imagine, like, removing something from my life, I would be sad not to have it, but it also would not be, it, it's not even as um, valuable as your bike, because it wouldn't be that hard to replace it. Right, right. I mean, I guess there is something about like you have this history with this specific one, and you're kind of attached to yeah. it for that reason. Sure. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, totally. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, <laughs> so if your your house now caught fire, you would be running out of there carrying two cats and a dog. Is that right? <laughs> definitely, I would definitely save the pets right away. Number one. All right. Well, um, so yeah, summary of that is: I do not recommend your apartment building catching on fire, but if it does, it's better to survive than not. That is what I've learned. Okay, good. I'm glad you're still alive. Thank you, Alexa. That means a lot. <laughs> should we should we talk about drinks? Yeah. So um, today I went to Hop City in Birmingham. This is one perk of being in Birmingham as opposed to Tuscaloosa. Like I have different beer options. Um, and the employee at Hop City gave me like a background story for the beers that I chose. Um, so I have like more to say about beer than usual. Um, but my first beer, also I chose to be unconventional in my choices. So normally I feel like I drink sours or IPAs. Um, but my first beer today is a peanut butter porter. Um, Holy shit. Yeah, right? Um, this is by Back 40 Beer Company. Um, but apparently it was originally created by the Beer Engineers, um, which was like one of the first breweries in Birmingham um, that I guess cropped up around 2011 or so. Um, and apparently this beer started out at like 14 percent um and became like famous for its alcohol content and flavor profile i guess um and eventually like sort of like traded hands and the original brewers uh parents money ran out and so then it got bought by um back 40 and this is like the newest instantiation which is not 14 percent um it is only Oh, 10% shit. A mere 10%. Is that a <laughs> tall can or a, a short No, it's can? a it's a small okay, can. It's, it's a little but, can. That's good. So I don't know. We'll see how this goes. But yeah, peanut butter porter. Wow. I cannot wait to hear your review of that. So I have a much more conventional choice. Um, I'll be honest. I don't know where this came from. It just turned up in our fridge. For a while, people were just giving us stuff out of sympathy. So it may be an apartment fire sympathy uh-huh. beer. Let's see. It is from Good Robot Brewing, uh, which is, uh, they're based in Halifax, Nova Scotia. uh, And it is Curly's Amber. It just says Curly's Amber. Um, Tastes like biscuits, caramel, and a crisp breeze in a plywood forest. Wow. 
Cool. Yeah. Let's open these up. Okay. Okay, how's yours? Um, good. Uh, it's sweet and it tastes like peanut butter. Um, but it's sort <laughs> okay. of like like a milkshake. I don't know. Um, oh, this is getting back to your milkshake beer thing. Yeah, yeah. I I feel like this is um, in some ways I don't uh, explore porters enough, which I think sort of like have that like sweet creamy flavor. Um, I mean, this is like a strange beer to buy, especially right now because it's been like 95 degrees for two months. Um, but, but yeah, I don't know. Um, I also really like peanut butter. To be honest, I thought that peanut butter in a liquid would be disgusting. Um, but I don't mind it. At least this might be a beer where I like take 10 sips and I'm like, okay, I'm over it. Um, but the first sip was good. Okay, we'll check in with you at the end of the segment and see whether your opinion has uh-huh. changed. I'm with you on the liquid peanut butter. That does not sound appealing. Mm-hmm. But um, I believe you that it's better than it sounds. So this, uh, I would say this beer is fine, but kind of unexciting. It's sort of like a sweet, malty ale. And it is totally forgettable, but also there's nothing at all wrong with it. Okay. So today we have a couple topics that I think are tied together by the fact that we are uh, second-guessing SPSB, so the Society for Personality and Social Psychology, uh, the biggest professional organization in our area. They hold a big yearly conference. And this is just a grab bag of things that I think more than you, Alexa, that struck me as being worthy of discussion. Like I think you're kindly indulging me in when I want to talk about this stuff, but I, I didn't sense a lot of enthusiasm for these topics exactly. Am I wrong? Well, my enthusiasm for the topic is more in that I think we will disagree. Um, but I feel like the way that this topic came about was like, you were like, SPSB is doing all this crazy shit. We should talk about it. And I was like, mm, that seems not that crazy to me. I see. Excellent. Yeah. Well, we will have some nice disagreement, which is always something obviously that we strive for. Uh, yeah. So there's there's two separate things that we wanted to talk about. Um, the first is uh, SPSB's communication about the recent overturning of Roe v. Wade. Uh, that was obviously the Supreme Court decision that prevented states from outlawing abortion um, and their decision-making around whether to move the conference in Atlanta, Georgia. And the second thing that we want to talk about um, after the break is their new criteria for uh, advancing equity and anti-racism in submissions. So in other, uh, submissions to the uh, to the annual conference, you can submit to give uh, a talk uh, or a session there. Um, and those submissions are competitive. So uh, there's criteria by which they're selected. And we're going to talk about whether we like what those criteria now are. Uh, but first, um, restricting abortion. Uh, so Here's the uh, the backstory: is that the yearly conference, uh, which is taking place in winter twenty twenty three three, yeah, twenty three, right? It's twenty two now, so it's like they usually they're in like January, February, March twenty three, um, scheduled for Atlanta, Georgia, um, mm-hmm. and these sites were picked um, some years in advance. I think they do like a three, two or three year ahead of time booking for these. So like obviously way before uh, the uh, decision overturning Roe. And 
Georgia is a state that has uh, passed a more restrictive abortion law that basically uh, outlaws abortion with uh, some kind of exceptions for the health of the mother after six weeks, um, which is obviously uh, a lot sooner than it used to be, which was like 22 weeks. Um, and so there was some consideration of whether SPSB should move the conference. Uh, and they wrote us an email uh, first saying we're thinking about it. And then they wrote us another email uh, titled uh, a statement from the SBSB executive committee on July 15th uh, that reads in part, um, SBSB was deeply troubled by the U.S. Supreme Court's recent decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, which protected reproductive rights for nearly 50 years. There is ample evidence that demonstrates the negative mental health effects caused by restricting access to safe legal abortions. This ruling, which will have destructive consequences for the health of pregnant people and those who may become pregnant, is not aligned with SBSB's mission and priorities. Many states are now poised to implement laws that restrict reproductive rights. And then they go on to say Georgia is one of those, but because it would be really expensive to move the conference and it would be tough to find another venue so late, they're going to go ahead and do it in Georgia. So basically that's the communication. We're not going to move it, uh, but we're definitely pro-abortion. We really don't like the Supreme Court ruling. And I guess the implication is that in the future, they may seek to avoid states that in some way restrict people's ability to get an abortion. I have a point of clarification. So in this email um, and in what I read about the Georgia law, so has that law been passed? So in the email, it says today an abortion in Georgia is legal up until 20 weeks into a pregnancy. The more restrictive law would mean um, no abortions after six weeks, right? And we anticipate that that will be passed, but has it been passed or is it just like very likely to be passed? My understanding is that it has been passed, but there's now a pending lawsuit that's going to sort out whether it may go into effect. Okay. Uh, so it's not clear whether the law would actually be in effect in in the winter of 23 or not. Okay. Yeah. So basically, that's, that's the email. Um, we think that this law is bad. Uh, we think that Roe should have been upheld. Mm -hmm. uh, but nonetheless, we're going to stay in Georgia. But, you know, reading between the lines, this is going to affect our decision-making in the future, and we're going yeah. to perhaps avoid states that in some way restrict abortion. Yeah, I would what read the email as like, if there were zero consequences to us changing the location now, that would be like a pretty realistic decision. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think about this overall? What are your reactions? So I guess the first thing that I wondered when I read the email, and there are some hints to this in the email, um, but I could see two major rationales for deciding to move the conference away from Georgia, away from Atlanta. Um, and the first is like um, the logic behind the first is that SPSB has members that are women who could be pregnant. And so being in Georgia could be unsafe for those people. Um, and I guess the, I mean, maybe that's a little bit more salient to me than it would be to like the, the average SPSB goer. Um, so I've like thought about what these laws would imply for me if I were to get pregnant while, um, while they're in place. And, and Alabama actually did have a trigger law that was like stricter than the one that um, is currently in place in Georgia. Um, and what that means if you're pregnant is that um, if something goes wrong 
it seems like you are to some degree at the, I mean, we're often at the mercy of doctors. Um, but Alabama has an exception for, um, the health of the mother. Um, but it would mean that you don't get to decide, right? So like the medical provider is deciding whether your health is at enough of a risk to terminate a pregnancy. Um, so, I mean, I can imagine situations where that would feel quite scary. Um, surely that is a concern for a very, very small number of SPSP goers. Um, you, you'd also have to have an emergency during the time that you're at the conference. Um, but that occurred to me as one possible rationale. They talk about um, the like threat um, that this law has to um, to people's like mental health and well-being and things like that. Um, I think that the rationale that you inferred, um, which is something like SPSP is pro-abortion um, and they're a, an organization that engages in advocacy. And so it would be, it would make sense for them to um, boycott a state with the goal of voicing their disapproval for a recent law. I think that's more likely their rationale. Um, but I think that the two different rationales have different, um, I guess, like discussions that go with them. Yeah. I, I just want to know for the listeners that there is now a cat climbing around on top of Alexa, but she, you handled that. Very <laughs> I was being so chill about it. You're, yeah, you were, that was, you didn't even let it interrupt your point. Yeah. So I would say like, you're totally right that those are two very different questions that in this email, they don't really even try to lean hard on the pretext of this is for health and safety reasons, uh-huh. right? Because the first two paragraphs are abortions are good and the Supreme Court ruling is bad, mm-hmm. right? So then to say like, oh, well, this is about the health and safety of our attendees, would be, I think, kind of just such a transparent pretext that they don't even try to say that. Um, to me, you know, I think certainly you could come up with a scenario in which somebody is pregnant, um, they need some sort of medical care that doctors are reluctant to provide in this state because they're worried about um, legal repercussions. Mm-hmm. And there have been cases, like rare ones, but there have been cases where people, patients, women have actually died because doctors were reluctant to intervene because like her life wasn't at risk enough until, oh, all of a sudden she has sepsis. And now, I mean, this happened in Ireland, right. right? That's the one case that I know about. Right. So you don't want to say like, oh, that's completely impossible. On mm-hmm. the other hand, like you said, like how big is that risk? How many people would this apply to? And then and And then like, how likely is it that they have this sort of serious complication while they're at the conference? And then I would say, this is very selective attention to risk. Like if you're worried about that risk, you might say, well, some cities are much safer than others because of uh, traffic laws and pedestrian safety, uh, because of gun crime, because some cities have better hospitals than other cities do. The US in general is much more dangerous than Canada. So this is a strong argument for just having all conferences in Canada all the time. Right. Right. And so it's just like, if you just go with a straight, you know, I care about safety and this is why we're doing this justification, then you have to say like, why is safety suddenly so important now? And why why uh-huh. this specific kind of safety rather than all the right. other kinds of safety that might affect your attendees in different ways? Right. 
So yeah, I agree with you that that they don't seem to be leaning that heavily on that argument. And I think that, I guess, um, in the the sort of like interest of frankness or directness, I sort of appreciate that they don't. Um, so you're right, they are pretty explicit about saying um, basically that SPSB is pro-abortion um, and that they are interested in engaging in political action to voice that perspective. Um, and so one thing that they said in the email was that basically the um, the decision on Roe v. Wade is not aligned with SPSP's mission and priorities. Um, and I looked at SPSP's mission and priorities to see, I guess, like where that would fit into that. Um, the part that um, that stands out to me as um, probably the mission and priorities section that is most applicable is, so I guess SPSP has sort of like five main mission points. And the third one is, um, enhance diversity of people and ideas in the field and promote an inclusive and respectful climate, which probably will relate to our second topic. Um, and then under that, they say that uh, one of their goals is to provide research, travel, and other support for diverse groups. So uh, that's where I, I can see it fitting most with um, SPSP's sort of mission and priorities. They also say in the email, um, and this wasn't necessarily like um, an association that I had previously had with SPSB. Um, they call themselves an organization that prioritizes advocacy. Um, I'm not sure if that means they encourage people to be advocates or if they mean that they themselves have historically um, taken an advocacy role. Um, but yeah, so this, it seems like SPSB is saying in this statement um that, yeah, they see themselves as having a role in advocacy um, and that their advocacy will like align with certain missions and priorities that they've outlined in their mission statement. Can you uh, just make it a little clearer for me what you see as the link between abortion law and the specific kind of mission and priority stuff that you mentioned, because I'm not quite seeing it. Yeah. I, honestly, I feel like it aligns better with, um, with the safety argument. And I think that there, the safety argument has the problems that you suggested. So like providing um, research travel and other support to diverse groups of people. So like making it equally possible for most people to travel. I mean, there's a million counterexamples that you can think of that SBSB doesn't do that would, you know, like increase the ease of travel for, for underrepresented groups and things like that. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess the main question then is, does this align with a mission statement or, um, priorities of SPSP that the membership has agreed upon? Is that, is that your, your objection? Yeah, I guess, I would say more broadly, should a scientific organization be taking a stand on contentious social issues that aren't solely empirical? Like, surely science can inform some of this, but there's also a component that's just moral, that's 
how do you weigh the rights of a fetus versus the right to autonomy of the mother? Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think that honestly is fundamentally a scientific question. And it seems to me they're coming down very heavily on one side of it. And obviously, you don't want to say what's right by pointing to what most people believe, right? Most people can believe something that's morally wrong. Mm-hmm. But it is worth pointing out that on abortion, Americans are quite divided. Mm-hmm. And most Americans support some restrictions on abortion. Uh, uh-huh. Few Americans support a total ban, um, but most support some restrictions. Uh-huh. So by staking out a position that I think is quite extreme, so they say are poised to implement laws that restrict reproductive rights. So you can read that to say any restrictions on abortion, SBSB uh-huh. is against. And that would be a really extremist position. I, I don't know if that's actually what they mean, but you could certainly read it that way. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's just not the place of SPSB to take a stand on this kind of issue. So you said contentious social issues, right? Is the contentious part um, critical? So I would, I think you could pretty easily find examples of ways in which SPSB and and most scientific organizations take a stand either explicitly or implicitly on I mean, social issues is such a broad term, you know, so like um, another way that people like I feel talk about these kinds of issues is um, is talking about whether these societies should be taking a political stance. Um, And again, that word is so general, right? So, of course, there are political decisions that SPSB makes or political positions that they endorse, right? Like there are aspects of. SPSP's organization that are like democratic, you know, we have elections, things like that. So if you are to say, okay, SPSP shouldn't engage in any political decision-making, like what do you really mean by that? And it seems like when people say like you shouldn't be political, it means you shouldn't be taking a side on an issue that is divisive for, um, like creates a division between American Republicans and Democrats. Is that... Is that the category that SPSP should stay away from? Yeah. So I said contentious because of exactly what you pointed out, right? So there's lots of political questions um, that are not contentious and that most people agree on and that I think it's fine for SPSP to implicitly take a side on. Racism Mm -hmm. is bad, right? You can find some people who are like, no, I think racism is great, but I wouldn't say it's a debated issue. In the U.S. Right. these days, uh-huh. right? Democracy is good. I think, yeah, there are some people who are like, no, we should have kings. But again, not really a live position. Um, I, I think my uh, feeling about this is kind of pragmatic in the sense of we want to be speaking broadly to Americans regardless of their political alignment. And when we align ourselves with like a political side or a faction – that that's bad. It's bad for our science and it's bad for our ability to affect policy and to convince people that what we do is worthwhile. Like we've talked about this before, right? Like if we're just partisan hacks, then people are going to tune us out. Yeah. But we never agreed on that. (laughs) That's true. Okay. Maybe, maybe now's the time to have it out. Yeah. Um, so the, like, 
appealing to all people regardless of their political position i mean i i don't think that you would argue that we should appeal to white supremacists and you could i think claim that that's a political position right um and i don't think that it's because that's a minority position right like it is a minority position if you like think about the entire population of the united states but i would i would guess that you think there's something more to um opposing white supremacy than just okay, we can just default to that because um, because uh, it's un- like a popu- the more popular stance. Um, so I kind of feel like there are values also underlying what you would say is like a, a default assumption that you can make. Yeah. I mean, so I said it in this way of like, the, well, I'm trying to be very pragmatic and, you know, there's like, White supremacists aren't, most everybody agrees that they suck. And so, you know, we don't need to try to craft our communications to be white supremacist friendly. But I think also you're right to point out that there is like an element of moral evaluation there as well, um, that I think that some views are just like beyond the pale because they're so repugnant, right? And, you know, I'm, I am personally pro-choice, but I don't feel that way about people who are opposed to abortion. Mm -hmm. I think that people can have sincerely held moral beliefs that make them opposed to it. And I think that is not our place as a scientific society to say, you know, this is the right answer to this difficult moral question. Yeah. Well, I guess, so I guess another question could be, you know, what counts as like a a political action or um, yeah, like taking a stand on these kinds of things. And I think maybe another counter argument, this is maybe difficult to make in this, the consideration of like whether or not to boycott a state. Um, But I think people would argue also that there are often consequences to taking no action or to like voicing no opinion on something and that like silence or inaction also communicates something right so i mean i guess the like more powerful historical examples of things like that are you know um yeah like not speaking up against like the ku klux klan or you know um other really like violent oppressive groups or something like that right and i know that you're probably just going to say uh abortion is like that that's a false comparison or something like that But it's hard to come up with a principle for saying when should a society stay out of something versus when should they be involved. I think that I think that is is really challenging for societies. I don't think that line is very clear. Yeah. So I would I would rather say, you know, this society just as a matter of principle doesn't take stands on like debated political issues. So it might weigh in with empirical knowledge to say, well, you know, we think that such and such uh, intervention is more effective. But to say, you know, here's like a live debate where people are hashing it out, like there's people on either side. Um, I I don't think that it is our job to take a side in those sorts of debates. And then that kind of saves you from making judgment calls about like where, well, where does it make sense for us to take a position versus not? Because we just say, well, we just don't. 
right? That's just not our job to do. Um, I would say that e- even if even if we were like, yeah, we should it, in some cases take a position. I think that a, abortion, to be honest, is such an easy call to not take a position because it's it's something where Americans are pretty evenly divided, where there are powerful moral arguments on each side, and where fundamentally a lot of what people care about is not empirical. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, I agree that people's stance on, on abortion is often not an empirical one or not based on an empirical analysis. Like it's more more based on a moral moral analysis. Um, why do you say that SPSBs, that's not our or the organization's place? So what is it about SPSB as an organization that means that it should stay out of these kinds of things? So I think as much as possible, we ought to be promoting have empirical answers to social questions. We ought to be able to say, well, to the best of our understanding, this policy is going to be more effective than that policy. Here, or even better, here are the costs and benefits of different policies that you might consider. And I think that's just fundamentally incompatible with being an organization that does advocacy, which just inherently to me involves your moral values. You know, mm-hmm. not just your assessment of what is, but you're thinking about how the world ought to be. Right. So, I mean, it seems like SPSB explicitly, it, there's not like, it's not like it's um, pretending that it's trying to do what you're saying, you know, like it says explicitly that it's an organization that prioritizes advocacy. So do you think that just like shouldn't be SPSP shouldn't be allowed to do that or like that's it's um internally contradictory or something. I mean, I don't think it's internally contradictory. I just think it's a bad idea. Uh-huh. Um and I'm yeah, I, I mean you're right that like what I'm proposing is not how SBSP thinks of itself. Mm-hmm. So this isn't like oh, SBSP you're being inconsistent with your stated values. It's I don't think your stated values are right. Yeah, right. Yeah. I I have another question which is like maybe sort of an aside, but um, so you were talking a little bit about how divisive abortion is in the U.S. Um, yeah, I think it like depends a little bit on how you slice it. Um, most Americans, I think, are in favor of abortion in some cases, but it depends a lot on what you mean by some cases. Um, do you think that SPSP should be primarily trying to represent Americans generally or their membership when they make decisions like this? Maybe that's an unfair question because maybe you think they shouldn't be making decisions like this. But I bet if you polled members of SPSP, their stance on abortion would be much less divided than it is within the country more broadly. Yeah, that's right. So I do think you could make a case that says, you know, well, this is just a um, a community of individuals who have some opinion that might be pretty different from what Americans at large think. And it's the job of the organization to advocate for their views. Um, you know, regardless of how popular those views are with the rest of the country. And even, I mean, you might take it to an extreme of whether you think those views are morally correct, right? Let's say like SPSB members held some belief that you thought was like morally questionable. Well, you know, it's the job of the organization to advocate for what most members think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I don't think that, the motivation to be advocates comes from that of the idea of like, Oh, we're just representing the beliefs of our members 
in part because I don't feel like we really get asked about it, right? Yeah. Like, if they really took that seriously, they would take polls, right? Like, what should we be advocating for? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do think that there, there is a non-negligible concern about the sort of statement that this sends about the organization's values and who's excluded by that. Um, and we're going to talk in the second segment about the idea of, you know, our racial minorities excluded and what to do about it. But I would just note that within the Democratic Party, white people, so white Democrats are more left on social issues than non-white Democrats are. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to get a group of like mostly left-leaning people, which we are, who are the people within that group who are going to be like more centrist on social issues such as abortion? Uh, it's going to be the non-white people. So in a way, like taking a very strong, you know, pro-abortion stand kind of runs the risk of telling some people who happen to not be white, maybe don't share those values, this is not the place for you. So you're saying that um, that excluding anything but very, very pro- progressive left-leaning ideologies could like ironically have the effect of um, opposing diversity goals or um, shutting down groups that are not represented in SPSP or... Yeah. I mean, this this may just be too cute, right? But I do think that there's... I, I just think that there's unintended consequences of saying, essentially, you know, the people who are in our very specific bubble, their views are morally right. And that's what we should be advocating for. And that's what you know, the kind of public position of the organization ought to be. And I think it's mm-hmm. easy to overlook who you might be excluding by taking that as the default. Yeah, right. Um, it's It feels tricky to prioritize diversity um, and also prioritize specific um stances on things at the same time like at some point they'll likely diverge right right okay exactly i think that's i think that's fair um yeah Uh, yeah i think that will come up in the in the second topic too all right so let's uh should we take a real quick break and then uh and then uh monday morning quarterback sbsp some more sounds good Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. We are on Twitter at Four Beers Pod, where you can at mention us or DM us. Mickey and I both check that account. 
If you'd rather email fourbeerspod at gmail.com as the show's email address, that will go to all three of us. Finally, the show's website, fourbeers.com. You can find all of our episodes there, and you can drop us a line there as well if you'd like. If you're enjoying the show, please take a second to rate uh, and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. It helps other people discover the show, and we really enjoy reading them. Alexa, have I left anything out? That sounds good. So our listeners have been waiting patiently this uh, this whole time to hear what is your evaluation of the beer. Um, I probably drank like twenty percent of the can, so I was still liking it, but I haven't made it through. But I really wanted to try a different one for the second half. So, um, wow! So you switched over despite not having finished. The- <laughs> yeah, now I have like a half full beer in the fridge. <laughs> That'll keep, that'll keep. I hear open beers keep fine. Okay, so what is the second thing that you're so excited to drink? Okay, this is a beer called Mayura Dark Cape. Um, and it's made by Red Clay Brewing Company, which is out of Opelika, Alabama. Um, and I'm going to read you part of what it says on the back. So first of all, this is a Caribbean stout again, or dark beer again, um, aged in rum barrels with coffee. Um, and it says the double master series is a collaboration between master sommelier Emmanuel Camigi of Mayuria Vineyards and master brewer Carrie McGinnis of Red City Brewing Company with the sole purpose of creating the finest craft beer possible. So again, the person at Hop City was like, this is a cool beer. This is a fancy stuff. So Whoa. it's kind of gourmet. It seems like you've come with two like really intense, heavy things this time yep. around. <laughs> just I just figured want. I'd dive in. <laughs> On a hot summer night. Super unrefreshing. Beautiful. All right. Well, um, I'm actually still uh, working on the beer that I started at the top of the show, but I also poured myself uh, a little bit of Elijah Craig rye for nice. when that beer runs out. Yeah. So, you know, we'll be drinking probably roughly the same ABV once I transition <laughs> over to that. Do you, do you want to crack it open and tell the listeners what you think? I like this less. Not enough oh. peanut butter. That's my... It's going to be your criticism of every beer going forward. <laughs> Where's the peanut butter? <laughs> peanut butter is too subtle. Yeah, yeah. You can barely taste the peanut butter in this one. Lame. All right. <laughs> so uh, let's talk about topic two. Uh, so as I sort of mentioned at the, at the top of the show, um, we're... I guess just like focused on SPSB and specifically now that I think about it, like really the conference um, mm-hmm. because this came up in the submissions uh, guidelines for the conference. So if you want to give a talk there or you can submit a package of talks as a symposium, uh, you need to apply and those uh, applications, those submissions follow a specific format where they tell you exactly what they want you to, uh, to write, you know, like uh, write a short abstract, write a long abstract and so on. And, uh, Last year, they added something new, although last year it was not uh, part of how the abstracts were actually scored by raters. So these are all, these submissions are all rated. And then by some process that they don't, they're not quite transparent about exactly how it works, but basically they try to pick the highest rated ones. Um, And uh, last year, they introduced something to further advance equity in anti-racism in submissions, which asked the submitters to, quote, 
please explain whether and how this submission advances the equity, inclusion, and anti-racism goals of SPSB. This may include, but is not limited to, the research participants in the sample, the methods used in the research, the members of the research teams involved in the work, e.g. background, diversity, career stage, affiliation type, the content of the presentation, e.g. critical theories, prejudice, equity, cross-cultural research. Okay, that's 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 the instructions to the submitters who are supposed to write a thing about that, um, and the reviewers are then instructed to uh, separately from the scientific strength of the submission to evaluate the extent to which the submission advances SBSB's goal of promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion, and anti-racism. Um, and those goals, which I got from the website, are demonstrate that SPSP values diversity and inclusiveness of people and ideas. Goal two, facilitate the development of more anti-racist scholarship in our field, e.g. reduce racist method practices, place equal value on the research of minoritized non-U.S. or non-weird participants. And goal three, increase representation of individuals from diverse and underrepresented groups within our presenters and research teams. And so it gives them, the uh, evaluators, some more details on how to score the submissions on uh these equity and anti-racism criteria on a scale of one to three, where one is the submission does not advance SPSB's goal of promoting equity, inclusion, and anti-racism, and three is exceptional. The submission clearly and strongly advances SPSB's goal of promoting equity, inclusion, and anti-racism. Now, they don't say how these scores are uh, integrated into the kind of final total score that the submission gets. Um, and it might be that they're not weighted very heavily, right? We don't know, but they are weighted to some extent. So the reviewers are supposed to score these things for how holistically they advance SPSP's inclusivity and anti-racism goals that has some bearing on their chance of being accepted. Um, and this was the thing that prompted me to text Alexa and be like, we have to talk about this. This seems like such a bad idea. And Alexa to be, you know, what, this seems fine to me. So do you, do you want to give the this is fine to me take and then maybe I'll say why I found this objectionable? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I I feel like this is less controversial or this seems um, less surprising, less controversial to me than, than the previous topic, actually. Um, and so... I, maybe like a little bit of um, context. So I guess um, I was uh, the the president of SIPS um, in the summer that George Floyd was murdered. And so I think that um, we, at the time, we like wrote an anti-racism statement um, going back to like what we were previously talking about when it comes to, you know, the what does it mean to say nothing in cases like this? And, you know, like it feels like every kind of action or inaction can be um, read as indicating like a particular stance on these kinds of topics. And so um, I guess I'm partly coming at this from the perspective of somebody who was um, very involved with an organization who I could easily have seen um, implementing these kinds of um, requirements as a way to, yeah, to make the organization to to exactly what SPSB says, like to advance equity and anti-racism within an organization that, you know, even even SIPS, which was sort of like founded with the 
um, intention of like prioritizing diversity from the start and is a very young organization. Um, still like the vast majority of SIPs members are white. This is true of SPSB as well. Um, there's a very unrepresentative section of the population. Um, it sort of like along any dimension. Um, so yeah, so this is something that we, um, I think almost, there was a large consensus that it was um, part of the goals of the organization to um, to increase uh, inclusivity, um, to increase diversity, um, to prioritize equity. And I know these terms are so broad that it's not always clear what that means. Um, but I think like one of the things that's uh, going through people's minds is um, – we have uh, we seem to have these problems of uh, systemic racism in the United States. And as academics, what is there that we can do about it? And um, these problems are very deep rooted. And, you know, you can go back hundreds of years and think about the their causes and it. So it starts to seem extremely daunting um, and like individuals have sort of like no role to play. Um, but then you consider, OK, well, you know, is the academic society that I'm part of, um, you know, doing all it can be to be inclusive or um, all it can be to expand the voices that are present. Um, and I think this is particularly important in the context of scientific societies because, um, yeah, like science, I mean, within the United States, science has been used explicitly to advocate for white supremacist values, right? So, so it feels like there's a there's a responsibility um, on scientific organizations to show that we're doing things to prevent those that kind of thing from happening again, right? To to make sure that we're getting all of these different voices and perspectives, so that we're not, you know, um, advocating for the supremacy of one racial group or something like that. So I mean, all that is to say, um, I could I could easily have seen myself choose these kinds of this kind of um, kind of policy change. Um, and I sort of see where, where it's coming from. So what are you, what are you so worked up about you all? What, what am I so worked up about? Um, so first I, I want to like do one pedantic correction, which is you said, um, that SBSB is overwhelmingly white. Um, and I was like, is it actually, so I, I pulled up the diversity statistics, um, on SPSB. And this is the survey from 2019 that says 62% of the membership identifies as white uh, versus in the U.S. population, uh, it's close to 76%. Yeah. So they actually, relative to the population, underrepresent white people, even though white people obviously are the majority. They do underrepresent uh, Hispanic and black, uh, but they yeah. overrepresentation, right? Right. Yeah. Sorry. I, I do. I know the statistics for... Um for black membership of SPSB and I know they're underrepresented and yeah, I didn't know, I didn't know that um, white people were overrepresented and I was wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, but I think the point is fair. Like, you know, the population of uh, the, the membership of a scientific society is not going to represent demographically the population of the country and you're going to underrepresent certain groups and you might think that's bad. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, 
And I, I mean, I agree with that actually. Like, I do think it's bad. Um, mm-hmm. And also, I totally get the feeling of like, we want to do something. Like, this is this important social issue. Um, and we feel sort of helpless. And here are the, the things that like we act, the levers we actually can pull. And so we, we want to change something because we think that this is an important question. Um, or an important problem. The mm. thing is that I I don't know whether that what you end up doing in that case is necessarily a good idea, right? When you're in this like do something mode, um, do you come up with things that are actually good ideas to do? And my objection to this really is not like the goals necessarily. It's the way that I think they honestly sort of sloppily mush together a bunch of things that are not uh-huh. at all the same, right? I think I think I can, will, would probably agree with that, actually. Oh, um, my God. Alexa. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> I tr- I'm really fucking trying here. Sorry, I'm going to stop interrupting. Go on. Well, I thought you were going to actually disagree, but you're just like, oh, I actually think that you that your heart's in the right place, but you just like maybe misstepped. It's like... Uh, I'm yeah. too nice. It's true. I've been in Canada too long. Sorry. I, I'll let you go on. Now. Um, well, okay. So, uh, so getting into the sort of specifics, I guess, of how they're trying to uh, accomplish these, um, these goals. Um, so they include, uh, things that you should highlight in your, um, in your submission, right? So you could, you could highlight diverse research participants. You could highlight diverse research, research methods, um, you could highlight diverse members of the research team, um, and you could also highlight presentation content. For example, prejudice and discrimination, critical theories, cross-cultural research. Um, I think that, um, I don't know if we're going to disagree in the same way, but I think some of these are much more valuable than others. Um, I really am a big fan of diversifying um, research participants um, and members of the research team. So there's just like, I think there um, are limitations involved in being members of like societally significant groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and by societally significant, I mean like meaningful. I don't mean uh, anything hierarchical about that. Um, and so uh, I think that in order to do a good job um, as social and personality psychologists, um, we need to represent as many of those views as possible. Um, so I'm a fan of that. Um, and then, uh, for presentation content. So there, there would be something like pretty unsatisfying to me about, um, some like, let's say like I were to submit, uh, a proposal on like my research on prejudice and discrimination. I don't think I should get points for that. Um, and so, yeah, there are some um, some items on this list that seem more valuable than others, and I'm sure you could sort of like subdivide them as well. What do you not What do you not like about the specifics? I'll tell you in a second, but but first, it, it sounded like you were making an argument for demographic diversity that's really based on viewpoint diversity. And oh, you and Mickey are just like <laughs> all about viewpoint diversity. No, I. I, it's true that I'm making that argument. So go ahead. Yeah. So, well, I mean, do you, do you see a contradiction there or does that lead you some places that you don't like if you're like, well, what viewpoints are excluded? 
well, lots of ones that are non-standard progressive. Well, I didn't say that I'm against viewpoint diversity. I said I'm for demographic diversity. Uh, but I thought you said your basis for endorsing the demographic diversity is we need diverse viewpoints. No, that's not my basis. Oh, okay. Well, uh, okay. Um, I think that's part of it. Um, but I also think... Um, well, I guess you, I don't think that you can have one without the other. Hmm. Sorry, say a little more there. I'm not sure I'm like quite following. So I guess if you were trying to have as much viewpoint diversity as possible, wouldn't you also be trying to maximize demographic diversity? Possibly, but not necessarily. And I guess my point is just like, well, if viewpoint diversity is the thing that you're trying to maximize, then there should also be other kinds of inclusiveness that you worry about? Like, are we excluding people who don't share the dominant political views of the field? Because they're definitely going to have diverse viewpoints, right? Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't see a problem with that. I just think that, so yeah, within our field, I think that the, the form that the like viewpoint diversity argument has taken is like, we're not representing conservatives enough. Um, and I just think that there's like a vast ocean of other viewpoints that we're like completely ignoring. Um, and those often align with um, demographic diversity. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, like the idea of uh, being more inclusive of groups that are underrepresented, um, particularly if those groups are socially discriminated against, I'm a hundred percent for that. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you're like, yeah, you know, if somebody belongs to an underrepresented demographic category, we want to give their application a boost. I, it, it basically affirmative action. Mm -hmm. Like I would be a hundred percent okay mm -hmm. with that. Okay. Um, and I also think that our reliance on specific kinds of samples, which is just really a function of what's easy and cheap to do. So like a lot of undergrads, mm -hmm. a lot of mTORC, a lot of prolific, right? These mm -hmm. are the kinds of samples that are just easiest to get. Yeah, it's not great. And, you know, yeah. if you can incentivize people to get like harder to recruit samples, then absolutely. And often, you know, if those might be, you know, non-Americans, for example. Um, it might be some minority groups that are harder to reach using online surveys, all of that stuff. And I, I mean, I know from experience that like running those sorts of studies is labor intensive and you often don't get, a, <laughs> it, you don't get enough of a bonus for yeah. it from like reviewers to make it worth it. Right. So like the rational thing would be to just like run a bunch of prolific studies. So I think if we want to say, yeah, we, we think that that is like, honestly, more scientifically important, then we, yeah, we, we could give people a bonus based on that. Mm -hmm. And then there's this other stuff about, you know, using certain methodologies and if it's based on critical theory or if you're studying stereotyping and prejudice. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I'm like, come on, right? Like, I, I don't think it's the job of the organization to pr be promoting certain you know, sub-disciplines or methodologies. It just, that to me goes under, you know, the scientific quality of the work. So I think that the problem with this is it like mushes together a bunch of stuff that ought to be separate. And it, in 
mushing together all that stuff in the evaluation criteria, it really just gives reviewers license to apply their like existing political biases. So what I think they will do often is to look at the demographics of the submitters, first of all. Okay, maybe that's fine. Mm-hmm. But then also to kind of apply a general filter of does this use the right bu- buzzwords, right? Does this seem like mm-hmm. culturally a fit with how I, just guessing based on demographics, a liberal upper middle class white person, think about mm-hmm. diversity, equity, and inclusion? Like, are you hitting the right terminology? Mm-hmm. And, you know, submissions that do that are going to do a little bit better. And I think that's just bad. And I, I think that like doing it in this way reflects like a demand to do something. And I think not enough thinking through in a careful way what ought our goals to be and what's the best way that we can meet them. I guess in response to that, I'm sort of like, do you think that's any different? Like, do you think that introducing this category is, is going to like cause people to rely more on buzzwords and trends than they, they have in the past? It seems like, I mean, what are the other categories? There's um, there's probably something like, I don't know, interestingness, uh, importance. Like people are already going to lump those things in with that, those. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think if I'm understanding your point, you know, it's that generally, you know, these review criteria are pretty loose and leave a lot of room for bias and, and just noise. Um, and actually, I you know, shouldn't speak too confidently about specifically, you know, what are the score sheets that SPSB gives reviewers for the other stuff, because I haven't looked at it. But it just, given my experience of like reviewing for conferences, they're often pretty holistic in a way that invites people to just uh, think in a biased or noisy way. But I also think like, well, if this is something that really matters, then let's do it right. And I I think Mm -hmm. that in many cases, like it's possible to do it in a way that's much clearer, right? So Mm -hmm. you can have people fill out a form about their demographics and we can say, if you belong to one of these underrepresented categories, you get a boost, Mm -hmm. no human judgment needed. You can have people say, you know, what are the participant populations? Mm -hmm. And that's probably not something where you can like, automate it with like a checkbox, but it's a pretty clear cut judgment that the reviewer can say, does this use harder to reach populations that I think will enhance the science and make our conclusions better, more Mm -hmm. generalizable? Yes or no, right? Okay, get a boost for that, right? So there's definitely ways to do this that are like less bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One thing that I don't know also is how a reviewer decides about the diversity of the research team. I should know this because um, because I was involved in an SPSB submission, but I don't know if they like collect, as far as I know, they don't collect information about your um, demographics or at least not detailed information. So I think you're supposed to write in in this statement. You're supposed to be like, so you would write, you know, uh, right. okay. you know, I'm a gay woman. You know, yeah. you could put that. Which is I, what I wrote. Obviously. You're laughing. You're like, are you serious? I didn't write that. Wait, um, did you actually? No, I didn't. No, I did I did cross my mind, though. I thought it would be kind of funny, actually. Um, but. Yeah. Right, right, right. You know, my, my partner is a woman, except my talk. 
Um, yeah. Yeah. So like, I, I think you're supposed to write that. Or if you're the member of, uh, you know, a racial minority group, you're supposed to write that or, or whatever. Maybe if you're like, yes, you know, first right. generation college, you're supposed to write that. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't seem like it gives them any, any guidance for which of those to weight more heavily. Right. Yeah. So do we underrepresent gay people? I honestly don't know, but like, would some reviewers be like, oh yeah, you know, you, she's gay. Let's like bump her up a little bit. And other reviewers would be like, we have enough gay people that doesn't get you anything. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's also important to be clear about what underrepresented means. Right. So, um, yeah. Are you like giving men a slight boost because, um, they might, there might be fewer men than women in SPSB. I would argue, no, I know we've had this conversation before too. Right, right, right. Yeah. 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 Or, I mean, I, I mean, even trickier is like, you know, you're Asian, obviously you're a minority in the sense of like demographically mm-hmm. in the U S uh, but you're overrepresented among right. SPSB members, right? Do you get credit for that or not? I think it's up to the individual reviewer mm-hmm. or, you know, what if like, one person writes Asian and another person writes person of color. Mm-hmm. It just seems a mess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think that the, yeah, I, I think that that's tricky and, and more guidance would be helpful. Yeah. I think honestly, like this is a situation where it is, it seems to me pretty clear that this could have been thought out better. And the thing is, if you're like, I want to enhance diversity of in- and inclusiveness, like it's very hard to be like, well, I think there's these things wrong with your proposal, right? It's just not a topic where people really feel inclined to counter argue, except for me. That's not been my experience. Really? <laughs> my experience is that people are like um, extremely worried about making mistakes in proposals like this. Um, and so like, well, yeah, like for instance, when when we wrote the um anti-racism statement like it was um there was like a a lot of revision and a lot of um debate about what exact words to use and a lot of like concern about getting it wrong um my i don't know my guess would be that there were similar things that happened here um yeah people are really worried about being canceled you know and like you're you're much more likely to be canceled if you try something like this and do it wrong than if you just like stay out of it entirely. Well, if this ends up with SPSB getting canceled, I apologize in advance. <laughs> <laughs> but like, so what's your theory for how you get to, because it, it seems like these issues that we're raising, like they're frankly kind of obvious. How did they not get raised? Um, wait, what do you mean? Like these issues with the with the way that SPSB specifically is asking for this information, like, and 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 the ways in which it's being scored. Like we've brought up all these problems with it, and these seem like kind of obvious problems, and yet they've rolled it out in this state. How did that happen? Uh, well, so we've said okay, um, it's not clear how you're supposed to um, determine diversity or evaluate it or or weigh different kinds of diversity among members of the research team, right? But like, what is that going to look like, right? You get, if you were to actually specify that to reviewers, like you get five points for being black and you get this many points for being Asian, like that, that sounds absurd. So like, I think- You get negative points for being Asian. (laughs) Like too many uh, Asians. 
I think that this is um, general for a good reason. Um, I guess I'm not sure that I, although, yeah, it's, it's just easy to point out problems, right? So like, I'm not sure that I could write this in a way that's way better. Do you think you could? I mean, I would honestly just do the checkbox demographics for the submitters. Mm -hmm. um, and then I would ask people to specify, do you have any samples that are harder to get than MTurk and undergrads mm -hmm. and have them write that in mm -hmm. and take that as a first pass? Yeah. I mean, that has some obvious benefits, which are that I think that sometimes people, um, even when they're asked explicitly to write a statement, um, are not going to want to list their own demographics in that. Right. Like if I had, if I were to check a gay box, I would have done it, but I'm not going to write the gay it in box, there. Alexa. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and no, I know like, is, a lot of people who feel uncomfortable with that. It is weird. It's weird to just write it in there, isn't it? Yeah. Very. Yeah. 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 Right. But that's a, that's an improvement. I'll give that to you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm sure people worked hard on this and I'm, I'm sure I'm not giving them enough credit for how much they went back and forth about it. But I, I just think the result is not great. And I, I think they should not be canceled, but I don't think this is an amazing effort. That sounds like basically like your review of your first beer. Yeah, exactly. Right. Half a thumb up. They, yeah. Right. I appreciate what they're trying to do, but I don't think I like the results. Um, any any other SPSP criticisms that you want to get out there before we wrap this contentious episode up? Oh, I have a final question. Did you submit to SPSP? No, I might be a co-author on a submission. I forget, but I didn't submit myself. So you haven't had to write one of these? I have not. And I, I don't even know what I would put, you know? Yeah. Being a Shame. These days, being a Jew gets you nothing. <laughs> Times change very quickly, you know. Mm -hmm. Pretty recently, they were trying to kill us. Some places they still are, but in the U.S., eh, doesn't get you anything, and it shouldn't. It really shouldn't. We're fine. We're doing great. <laughs> is that the note we're ending on? Yes, it is. <laughs>